Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. Now, you know I am a big fan of audiobooks, and now you know who I trust most with my audiobook purchases. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, you know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. I'm currently listening to Zenobia July, a novel by Lisa Bunker. It's a bold, heartfelt story about a trans girl solving a cyber mystery and coming into her own, and I cannot get enough of this book. And I got it on Libro! Listeners of the Children's Book Podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter WINNER. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. No, I when I did my book launch in Winnipeg, um, Rosanna Deerchild, who I think is mostly the host. That's, no, of she's the name that I know from that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she was the host of the book launch, and then we did this quick little uh, rapid interview for Unreserved, and it was really cool. She just did it in the um, in the bookstore, and uh, she's sort of like a Cree auntie, and is she? so. Yeah. Yeah, so it was great because she was, um, you know, making jokes and sort of teasing me a bit, which is something you I'm used to, obviously. And then as soon as she hit record on her recorder, it was just all business. Like she, she's been doing this for a while. She's great at it, and she just uh, could just zone in. And yeah, she's just really great, and she does a lot of like wonderful work. That's cool. A story driven by the Cree language that rests on the act of being in relation with one another. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 532. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm speaking with Dallas Hunt about Oasis and the world-famous Bannock. Oasis is bringing some of her Kokum's Bannock to a relative, but she accidentally drops the world-famous Bannock off a bridge. She meets several forest relatives on her way back to Kokums, including a duck, a rabbit, a frog, an owl, and a bear. And while each is not able to provide Bannock, 
one by one the forest relatives offer comfort and generosity in the form of ingredients. Dallas speaks to me about the importance of putting Cree first when writing this story. He also shares a brief and complex history of Bannock, an important food to indigenous people both now and during historic times of massive and purposeful starvation. There is so much to talk about in this beautiful, beautiful picture book. Please welcome my guest, Dallas Hunt, author of Oasis and the world-famous Bannock. So, Tansinita Temtek, Dallas Hunt, and Sikasan, Nia Omanehio, Igwa Wapasusipil, Tania. So, hi everyone, my name is uh, Dallas Hunt, and I'm Cree, and I'm from uh, Swan River First Nation, which is in Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta, Canada. Uh, my pronouns are he and him, and I am not only sort of a dabbling writer and children's books and poetry, but I'm also a professor at the University of British Columbia in the English department. Welcome, Dallas. I'm so glad you're here. And congratulations on your debut picture book. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. It's a really, really pretty picture book. High Water Press. Uh, Great job bringing everything together. Amanda Strong, beautiful job on these illustrations. Um, And it was a story that, to me, felt so much in the tradition of other stories that I've read when I've been talking to people about Oasis and the world famous Bannock, I keep likening it to the story of the little red hen only kind of in reverse. But I, 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 I can't wait to dig right. in and talk to you about what, what that means and where I see that coming from. Uh, first, would you mind introducing this book, uh, a little book talk perhaps for those that haven't come across your book yet? Yeah, so basically the book is about a young girl named Awasis who uh, is sort of tasked with taking some bannock, which is a um, uh, indigenous uh, food item. Let's say it, it it has a complicated history, something I've been talking more and more about. But um, yeah, she's tasked with taking bannock from her cookum, which means grandmother in Cree, to a relative. But along the way, she loses the bannock. And so sort of, uh, you know, distraught, anxious, doesn't know what to do, but, and goes on the search for more Bannock to replace it. And along the way, she encounters a lot of um, other than human relatives in the forest who help her along the way to get the ingredients so she can make more Bannock, more or less. I found having not, having, having not like a, a, a ready awareness of what Bannock is, of the other than I've mm-hmm. heard it being spoke of. There's a, a wonderful new picture book coming out in the States, I think through Candlewick. I might be wrong about that though, called Fry Bread. Um, and I've I've heard some of the history of, so I'd love to break that down with you, talk about that with you. But as um, Oasis is meeting these different um, animals in the forest, I loved, I loved as she's meeting these different animals, how... Um, how they're all offering, I don't have Bannock, but I have <laughs> whatever I have, I have eggs. I don't have Bannock, but I have butter, um, <laughs> with, and, and then realizing that, that all of these items are, are the broken down ingredients of Bannock. Uh, and also that, that in this story, everyone is coming in to help. 
so I brought up the story of the little red hen, which is this story, obvi- uh, obviously, but for those that, that haven't heard of it, um, the story of, of this hen that wants to uh, make, sometimes it's a cake and sometimes it's bread. And she goes around asking all of her friends if they can help. Um, but no one wants to contribute anything. Fine, I'll do it myself. Um, and then mm-hmm. when they they all want to eat the bread when it's all done or the cake when it's all done, um, she says, no, I'll do it myself. Right. <laughs> so I, I appreciate it in that way and in, in that comparison, the way that, that these different items come together, they come together to help her, uh, to provide for her. Um, and I also... Uh, and I talk about this often when I speak to individuals who have uh, books written in dual languages. In your case, it's Cree and in English. Um, how awake my senses become when I'm reading a language that I don't know. And I have to imagine that the same thing right. happens for children or that other experience when you when you are the one in the room that knows that language and others don't. That kind of ownership and and the way the book is showing you a mirror of, of your own experiences. So uh, I want to talk to you about, I think first about your choice to have, to have Cree be centered so much in this storytelling from your author's note. I I feel like I get the intention that that, that that was there all along, that you wanted a book to incorporate Cree. Is that true? Yeah, I would say the book is largely motivated or sort of uh, driven by the Cree language. It was sort of the impetus behind the book. Um, uh, The story was one that had come to me um, after uh, a long drive uh, with my partner where we actually were looking for Bannock. So there are similar sort of uh, parallels with Owasis. But when I thought about the story, I thought, well, if I were to write a children's book, I would really want to foreground sort of the Cree language and... um, not only that, I mean, to get some everyday phrases that uh, not only um, Cree children, but other Indigenous children can possibly come into contact with and maybe use on a daily basis. Um, I sort of wanted to also foreground some of the teachings that are within sort of the Cree language stuff like Wakotuin, which is just sort of like, um, you know, the act of being in relation with uh, other beings, more or less. So it's not just that there's Cree and that uh, and Oasis is engaging in this journey, but it's also that she's cultivating and maintaining these relationships with what is sometimes referred to as the natural world, but it's just, you know, uh, her, her surroundings, her sort of kin, and she has a relationship with them that isn't, you know, premised on just extracting things from them. It's It's rather that you know, she, spoiler alert, she gets all the ingredients, <laughs> she makes the bannock, uh, and then she shares the bannock with her new friends. So I, I kind of wanted to have that sort of, you know, foregrounded in the book uh, as well. And sort of what you were speaking to there with um, particular people in the audience, say, when I read it at public readings, uh, identifying or saying, um, you know, I know these words in Cree. Uh, I've, I've spoken at a lot of... Um, uh, well, I, I went to my reserve, which I think in the U.S. y'all call reservations, but I went to my reserve and I read the book and I've been to other schools with Indigenous children. And when words come up in Cree that they know, they are so excited because I'll sometimes say, you know, does anybody know what this word means? And they'll know and they'll just sort of, you know, shout it out. And it's been one of the sort of highlights of reading the book. That's um, so cool. That connection over yeah. language is so neat. And and as you're saying, for those that don't know Cree, or don't know another language there there's 
there's repetition built in like there like there mm-hmm. is in great picture books there's this repetition of of the phrase that i walked away with that i that i now just know and it's in my head and i would like you to please help me if i pronounce it wrong i'll do my best but it's tansi nitotem yeah that's that's Which good is, Which is, hello friend hello my friend yeah exactly I, and i yeah. think that to be able to walk away from a book and have language stick with you is it speaks to the relationship as well between author and reader. There's another book um, that, that came out from Charles Bridge last year called We Are Grateful, Ojali Haliga. And again, because of that repetition from Tracy Sorrell, um, the repetition of, of that language, um, lots of other indigenous uh, phrasing and words in there, but there's something that from first read, like Tansi Nitotem, that you can walk away f- with and also know that in your case too, it's something that we can we can speak directly to others. We can speak directly to our friends and to those connections. I just thought that that to me. <laughs> so I always talk about this, and I feel a little sheepish whenever I do. But as a teacher and as a parent, that to me makes me feel such a great kinship to you because it feels to me like you like your readers. You like them before you even met them. You're inviting them in and, and calling them friend and, and, and naming them that way. And so Dallas, when I read this book in that silly way, I just immediately felt like, oh, Dallas must be a pretty cool person because clearly he really likes children. <laughs> oh, super nice of you to say. Uh, it's been actually kind of humbling because, you know, I'll read to grade twos and, and threes, like people, uh, younger kids, and they're like totally excited about the book and um, engaging and then once I read to grade six, the students, when they're sort of going through that process of, you know, what's cool and what's not, that's when I really start to feel sort of uh, not as cool. Uh, but because they really make it clear to me that I'm just, uh, you know, an aged uh, person reading a book at them. But oh, no. yeah, no, it's been, but no, I, I also love that too, because eventually they come around and they it, come right back they're, yeah, they're just, it's incredible. But yeah, no, I um, I wanted to foreground, yeah, the the sort of friendly sort of relations that can be cultivated um, really just from the outset that it's, uh, that Oasis is interested in, you know, making friends and so are the uh, the um, animals that she interact that interacts with throughout the text. So it's it's really about um, establishing sort of those good relations from the start and not having to really do that uh, reactive work of having a relationship that maybe didn't start off in the best way. And then you have to sort of go about, you know, repairing it. I, I, I Awasis and who she engages with, it's, it's more proactive and a sort of there's a sort of mindfulness and a kindness there that. Um, yeah, I really wanted to highlight. I see that you spoke to those, those relatives of, of the forest of the wild. And, uh, you spoke about that earlier and I, I saw that immediately too, in the way that, I mean, we see right away that there's a bear, uh, in particular Mm -hmm. was the animal that I was like, Oh, this is, is this going to be like a big bad wolf type story? Right. Cause as we read, especially as we read for the first time, um, no matter what age you are, you're constantly trying to make those connections to the story and your own experience and what you've heard before. Um, and so I think that 
by establishing so quickly, um, and this is also thanks to Amanda's beautiful art and the way that she's she's postured the characters and and the expressions on their face, um, I think that that you are from the outset having these different um, relatives, the duck and the owl and the bear and and the the rabbit and uh, just immediately asking what's wrong and here I can help. I don't have this, but I, I I've got that and good luck on your journey. Um, that, that there's nothing threatening. And also Oasis is also not threatened. We don't read from her that she's scared. Um, but, but rather that, uh, she's willing to accept the, the comfort. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah. Uh, well, first and foremost, I mean, a lot of the sort of softness, I think, of the book, it does come from um, Amanda's illustrations. And uh, they did such a wonderful job on the book. And I had some ideas as to what Oasis could look like, potentially. And then one time they just sent me a mock-up of Oasis and I was like, that's it, that's perfect. And then cool. that, that, that just was like the vibe, you know, of the book, just these animals and Oasis is very soft features and the interactions, everything about it is, you know, sort of soft. And you spoke earlier about the sort of repetition and that's both, um, you know, really about just these interactions that are sort of generalized that you can have them in all these different contexts, but also that, um, the repetition is there also just as a sort of pedagogical, like let's keep repeating this word. Like you came away with Tansy need to tell and I'm very glad that you did. And part of me wonders or hopes or thinks that it's partly because it's repeated so many times in the book that finally you're by the end of it, like, okay, yes. Hello, my friend yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So Amanda's illustrations have been, uh, they're just amazing and um, they go hand in hand with, I think, just the general uh, thrust of the book, which is just acts of care and generosity and sort of cultivating those sort of um, uh, attributes or char- uh, characteristics. I was trying to look up um, what what um, medium she was working in to make this art. I love that that there's a distinct outline almost like a chalk or a paint outline in her work and that the colors feel muted they feel um sort of unified uh in that way that there's these just sort of a nice uh gray filter over everything that 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 brings everything together and also as you were saying just adds a real softness to the art and and that she also has done that service to the reader of of making the characters in the story large on the page that the, mm-hmm. the woods itself, the forest itself doesn't feel threatening. I think because we have the chance to see the character that we'll meet next, whether it's the frog in that foreground or the, or the rabbit or, or whomever. And um, I just think I, mean, I have a four-year-old. And so as I'm reading it, I, I think as I'm reading books, really intended around that age, I'm reading them differently now because I'm seeing firsthand how my daughter is reading story as I'm reading the words, as she's reading the art. And I think that Amanda, it, it feels very 
clear that 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 she understood uh, how her readers were going to read her art. Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling and unlock your creative potential with a team of story coaches and published professionals helping you achieve your creative goals. Sign up today at StorytellerAcademy.com. I talk a lot about how I appreciate when text and art are balanced and and in this case amanda gives enough for our eyes to wander over and to connect with while your text is going on that i find that there's there's deceptively a lot to take in in her art especially cuz she's taking your eyes across the fold uh across mm-hmm. that 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 fold of the page across the gutter um, to make the connection of oh here's who I'm going to meet next or here's um, who might be who might be coming is this going to be a threat I keep going back to bear bear spoiler <laughs> alert is totally fine in this book apparently I have <laughs> some some damage in my <laughs> past with bears and I'm very afraid of what they're going to do in books their <laughs> bear is right. great in this one <laughs> but I I, yeah. I do really admire the the, the work that she did in this. Yeah, I mean, one thing that has been uh, just totally new to me as a writer, so just doing the sort of professional writing that I do, which is largely academic writing, which is you produce an article that uh, about three people read, and it's very sort of like um, solipsistic, and it's oh. just, you know, <laughs> it's it's just all of these, uh, uh, well, that's the whole thing about the academic world, but um uh, with the picture book, I started to realize that, uh, especially through the whole sort of getting it to print process, that, you know, there is that whole blank canvas there that actually what I wrote is such a small, in a way, portion. It drives the narrative, sure, but um, a lot of what's going on in the book are just the beautiful, il- like, illustrations that Amanda has sort of provided and um, just... Uh, your eye being drawn to different things, as you said, you know, bear is in a lot of the sort of spreads throughout the book. And that's something that as I was writing it, I started to think through these different sort of mediums, which is, you know, um, how do we make uh, bear or masqua in this instance be, um, you know, uh, very uh, friendly or receptive, or how do we sort of give him a mischievous sort of, vibe without him being terrifying because you know <laughs> if you were to encounter a bear in the forest it would probably be or if it knocked on your door it'd be pretty terrifying but um you know there there is a lot just in the illustrations themselves that um are doing a lot of heavy lifting that i actually uh, found it kind of difficult to get through in in the writing um it would be simply because first and foremost i wanted the book to be about learning Cree. So uh, I could have filled it with descriptions of Masqua and what the bear is doing and where it's going. And, but then I thought it would have sort of stopped that sort of narrative drive. And so uh, Amanda's illustrations, what they do, I think, is they fill in all that other sort of work. They, 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 they create that world, right? And it's a world you inhabit as you read the book. And 
really the book would not be what it is without Amanda's illustrations. So I'm very pleased that they were able to work on this text with me. I feel like you're so articulate, so, uh, so much articulating what we hear in writing, which is about when we write picture books, which are so hard to write, we need to always leave room for the illustrator. And I think that it takes a lot of restraint to not say everything because we want to make sure that that the reader gets it. But in a picture book, for a picture book to work as well as this one does, you really cannot say too much. You need to allow that art to do some of the work. And um, <laughs> I think I, I what I want to just express is that I appreciate <laughs> your struggle with making sure you don't say too much because by leaving that room, as you said, you really allow Amanda to, to tell the story alongside you. And I think that mm-hmm. uh, particularly when you're talking about readers that are uh, pre-readers that are just reading the art while they're listening to the story, um, it's it's important that they, that they have something that they really get to read themselves. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've never had it sort of put that way to me before, um, but I think that's a great point in that um, I'd like to think if you were to read this text and you are, you know, young and you're not, you're getting a grasp on just basically how to read that you can actually just read the book through the illustrations themselves mm-hmm. and whether or not you get the entire narrative uh, is, I don't think is as important as just sort of seeing these interactions on the page and just being sort of, uh, you know, swept through or guided through how Oasis is sort of interacting. And uh, people are constantly, or sorry, uh, these uh, animals are, you know, constantly giving her these sort of items and then they're all gathered together at the end. So whether or not the words that I wrote are there, I think you you do see this narrative of, um, you know, sharing and coming together at the end that uh, is really what I'm trying to convey with the words. So the fact that, um, I think you can read it without the words, uh, just read the illustrations in a way is, is really quite interesting and actually something I haven't really thought through yet, but yeah, that's, and, but again, I think that just speaks to Amanda's work just generally. Yeah. It's really great. I'd like to read an excerpt of your story, if you don't mind, for listeners sure. to get a sense of, of, of how the story flows. And I think this will lead us directly into talking about Bannock, which I would really love to talk about with you. So we are... Near the end of the story, Oasis has gathered almost all of the ingredients and she meets Uhu, the owl, and um, she's a bit disappointed and it goes like this. Oasis gratefully received Uhu's offering but frowned a bit. What's wrong? Uhu asked. Oasis replied, I have all these ingredients but no bannock. Nukum is going to be so disappointed. Uhu hooted and laughed, but Oasis... Your Kukum's recipe is so famous. Even I've heard of it. Truth be told, I can hear very well. You have most of the ingredients now, but check with your Kukum first. And Uhu flew away. And I think we've done such a great job of not spoiling the story. So I will just say that there's (laughs) one ingredient missing. (laughs) And there's one character that you and I have been talking around the entire time that may be able to help out. (laughs) But but talk to me. Talk to me, if you don't mind, Dallas, about Bannock, about your relation 
to Bannock. And, and if you don't mind sharing some of that history, because I think it's important that we talk about, about that, that history of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, growing up, Bannock was uh, something that especially my grandmother um, and some of my aunties and my mother would would make, right? Uh, And Bannock is great with, it's such a versatile food item in that it can be uh, savory. You can eat it with a nice stew or uh, hamburger soup or something, which is something I sort of grew up on. Or you can engage in a sort of very decadent sweet with butter and sort of uh, Saskatoon berries or jam or all, all of these other sort of uh, ways of engaging with Bannock and, and things that I ate sort of growing up. Um, and so I have a deep sort of affective in a way, uh, emotional attachment to this, this food item as I think a lot of indigenous people do. Um, and it's similar with fry bread in the U S uh, um, I was going to include a fried bannock recipe, which is something I also grew up with. But then, you know, I want, I don't want a bunch of children around a bunch of hot oil, basically. Good, so I was like, move. Thank you. Not, yeah, it should not include that in the text. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, even with those emotional and familial and affective sort of attachments, uh, I do think, and this is something I haven't been able to really uh, comment on aside from in a few sort of interviews that I've done, um, is the actual historical and kind of realities of Bannock. And there there are a few things I want to say here. So, um, you know, uh, sometimes Bannock is uh, framed as a survival food, which it very much uh, was or is. So, the bannock that's provided in the book, the recipe, my grandmother's recipe, is actually, um, I've had a few people say, you know, what kind of bannock is this? Who uses, you know, who uses milk? This is like the most bougie, you know, native bannock ever, <laughs> um, which I've totally accepted as a critique and I, and I get it. Uh, but um, historically, it's been sort of a survival food. So as, you know, um, uh, colonial forces are sort of moving westward, both in the U.S. and, but especially Canada, there are acts of sort of massive and purposeful sort of starvation and, and all of these sort of horrific colonial uh, processes that are going on. And so Indigenous peoples are really doing what they can to survive. And one thing they sort of uh, rely on in many ways is Bannock, because Bannock uh, is filling. It's a sort of easy to make um, sort of uh, item, and you can make a lot of it quite quickly. And if you have nothing else, um, bannock really goes a long way. And in fact, you know, people have traced the histories sort of of bannock, and some people located in Scotland, and some people located in you know all of these other areas. And so, in a way, it's actually. Uh, some will argue that it's not an indigenous dish, really, that it's just a food that was easy to make, became a survival food, and yet indigenous peoples over time have attached themselves to this food, that it, it means a lot to them and their families, and uh, generationally it has meant a lot. And so there is a very sort of um, strong colonial history to Bannock, not only sort of where it comes from, but its historical usage over time. And, you know, concurrently with that is the sort of contemporary colonial realities of Bannock, which is to say that um, within some indigenous communities, and I hate to generalize, but 
you know, people have issues with things like diabetes and things. So I've had these conversations with friends and others about sort of, you know, is it, what do we do about the fact that uh, a lot of our family members and our kin uh, have diabetes and, you know, something like Bannock or especially fry bread can contribute to these processes. And while I think that's a valid and interesting uh, comment to make, I also think that it sort of neglects or elides the larger history here, which is that um, where I'm from and uh, in a lot of sort of reserves or reservations in Canada, uh, they're sort of remotely located. And this is sort of by design. So sometimes what you have is you have a reserve or reservation in an area where you don't have ready access to a lot of fresh, uh, you know, um, produce. Um, you, there, there is no kale in a sense where I'm from, right? Where I'm located in Vancouver now where there's a ton of kale. But if you go to northern Alberta, there, there isn't as much. And so what sort of happens is you're reliant upon, you know, food you can get from a gas station, say. And in that sense, you're eating a lot of processed foods. And uh, again, this is part and parcel uh, sort of the history of colonization, which is to say that um, if uh, reservations were too close to a city, they were moved away if, you know, uh, reserves were made more and more remote. And so the ability to get something resembling a healthy diet became drastically sort of altered uh, and diminished. And not only that, our sort of traditional economies of attaining food, which is, you know, berries, uh, berry picking and uh, wildlife, uh, you know, hunting and all of these other sort of traditional indigenous economies of, of sustenance of eating are also disrupted by, you know, processes of resource extraction and all of these things. So you have the simultaneous process wherein all of our, all of our um, modes historically of getting food have been radically disrupted. Uh, in some cases, it's unsafe to eat um, berries because there's a, you know, oil well or what have you, something nearby, mm. a waste treatment plant. Yeah. And so you can't really rely on those economies, uh, food economies that you have relied on historically for centuries, for generations. So what what then do you have? And that might be the local gas station or the local convenience store or what have you. And so all I'm really trying to sort of get across here is that if we want to point the finger at particular food items, I think... Um, it's not that I think Bannock or fry bread is exempt from these harmful health effects. Um, I do think they can possibly contribute to, you know, um, negative possibly health effects. But that said, there's a larger colonial backdrop here, which is that, um, you know, the histories of colonization have really limited the access we have to healthy and nutritious foods and to the economies we used to rely on. So, um, what do we do? And that's far outside the scope of uh, Oasis and the world famous Bannock. And, um, but I think that a lot of people still well recognizing these sort of uh, health effects and the colonial histories and everything, they still have these strong effective attachments to this food item. 
And um, it's just really about navigating that as we navigate everything. How do we engage with the world when the world has been so sort of predetermined or overdetermined for us? How do we uh, engage ethically, eat healthily? And we're really just trying to get by in many instances. And sometimes that's what Bannock can do. It can just help you get by. Thank you, Dallas. Thank you for this entire conversation, but thank you for um, helping to root us in history and um, in identity, and especially for seeing your young readers and those grade sixes <laughs> who will come yeah. back around. Um, but uh, it, 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 it means a great deal to me to know that someone like you is behind this book and someone like you is out there in front of children with this book. That means a great deal to me. Thank you for putting time aside today to talk to me. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I want to wrap us up by bringing us back to those readers and giving you the opportunity to speak directly to them. Dallas, I'll see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Yeah, I think what I would say is just to sort of read voraciously right to to read everything and anything you can and uh, libraries are great for this obviously uh, so to visit libraries and to read um, as many diverse and uh, just interesting books from maybe people or environments or experiences that you don't really have the chance to interact with as much but really have a lot to say about the world and the world as you'll come to know it as you're navigating and growing and going through life. So just really keep reading and read as much as you can and read as sort of diversely as you can. And in the end, I think you'll find that it will be its sort of own reward and very gratifying. This is Darshna Kiani, author of How to Wear a Sari, coming in fall 2020. Want to find out the latest South Asian books and children's literature? Check out www.darshanakhiani.com forward slash South Asian Kid Lit. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, I want to give a shout out to all of my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and keeping the lights on care of our Patreon page. 
Thank you, Jenny, Sue, Amy, Sarah, Kate, Lisa, Darshna, Marianne, Jarrett, Anitra, Mike, Lynn, Link, Corina, Cynthia, Elaine, Doug, Judy, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Teresa, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You're welcome to come with us, too. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.